Good morning. How are you this morning? Have you ever wanted to be a God? No? Oh, come on. You've never had... Um, You've never had that daydream thinking, you know, it would be awesome to have the power of a God. You know, to know things or to know everything, to have that kind of power, to have people look up to you and admire you and be willing to do anything for you. No one's ever, like, wanted to have people just want to do stuff for you all the time. Okay, four of you plus me, that makes five. Now, come on, not a bad life. Right? To be a God, to have people serve and to worship and to praise you as a God. Did you ever find that thought tempting? The story we've got today from Acts 14, I wonder if Paul and Barnabas found it at all tempting when the people in a city called Lystra thought they were gods. So let's take a look at that. Let's look how Paul and Barnabas responded what happened as a result, and maybe, just maybe, Lord willing, along the way, God will reveal some more to us from His Word about the life and witness of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Oh my goodness, we're nearly halfway through the book of Acts. Praise God. Yes? Ah, you'll all miss it when we're done. You'll see. Acts 14, where our next stop this morning on Paul's first missionary journey is a town called Lystra. Say Lystra. Good. You recall Paul's journey began in Antioch of Syria. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark stopped first on the island of Cyprus. And from there, Paul and Barnabas continued on to Pisidian Antioch and then to Iconium. And that brings us this week to the next stop on the Paul and Barnabas Train Express, a town called Lystra. So let's pick up that story in Lystra. I'll begin reading in Acts 14, verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, we might expect that any sort of display of supernatural power deep in the heart of Greek God country might cause, would cause, the local pagans at least, to jump to the conclusion that Greek gods were afoot. And that's exactly what happens here in Lystra. The people see that at Paul's command, a lame man jumps to his feet and walks, and they instantly connect that miracle to Greek gods, and they think Paul and Barnabas are gods. But there's more. There's much more, in fact, than that miracle that 
encourages the Lystrans to believe that Paul and Barnabas are gods. And not just any gods, but why Zeus and Zeus's son Hermes in particular? Well, there was a well-known story in the Phrygian area surrounding Lystra and including Lystra. Perhaps it even became a bedtime story for kids that had been told for generation throughout generations in the hill country. And the story went like this. Once upon a time long ago, the Greek god Zeus and his son Hermes disguised themselves as ordinary men. And they came down from Mount Olympus to mingle with mere mortals. And they came to the region of Lystra. And as the story goes, Zeus and Hermes traveled throughout the Lystran countryside, going from one house to the next. And at each house, Zeus and Hermes, in disguise in mortal bodies, asked for food and shelter and rest. Because you see, Zeus and Hermes came to test the people's hospitality. And much to their growing dismay and eventual anger, Zeus and Hermes weren't having any success. In fact, they visited a thousand houses, the myth goes, and of those 1,000 houses, only one home, the home of an elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus, only one family took them in and offered them rest. And so Zeus and Hermes rewarded the hospitality of Philemon and Bacchus and warned them that a terrible flood was coming and that the flood would destroy everything, would destroy all those homes and houses and people who had failed to offer hospitality. And so sure enough, while Philemon and Bacchus climbed to safety, the flood came and destroyed everyone else in the region. The house of Philemon and Bacchus became a temple to Zeus, and the story was retold generation after generation. And the moral of the story began to be, hey, be hospitable to strangers, because you never know when you may be entertaining a Greek god like Zeus and Hermes. They might come again. And so over time, you might see where that myth about Zeus and Hermes coming again and being angry over hospitality, over time, one of the special areas of Zeus and Hermes in particular, they became in part the Greek gods of protection and hospitality for travelers. Perhaps this story helps us understand even more the eagerness of the people to declare Paul and Barnabas gods. Here comes two of them. History tells us Paul wasn't a very impressive-looking physical specimen, especially not by perfectionist Greek standards. Some histories tell us he was small. Paul was small, scrawny, even hunched over. And the Bible tells us, right, of a thorn in the flesh that Paul has. Many scholars, it seems more likely than not that that thorn was a physical limitation of some sort, which might have been obvious to everyone, something that the Greeks might find distasteful as they worship the perfect human form. And then Barnabas, at least by comparison, was bigger. And while he, too, had an air of authority and leadership about him, probably, he was a Levite priest after all, you remember, Barnabas nevertheless gave way and let this littler guy do all the talking. 
And then the little guy, for no apparent reason at all, without seeking payment in return, offers hospitality to a lame man. Says, get up and walk. And the man does. And there's more to the story. Guess what titles were among the titles in Greek mythology for Zeus and Hermes? Get what, guess what Zeus and Hermes were called? One title for Zeus in Greek was Euangelios. Say Euangelios. You all spoke Greek this morning. Good job. And one title for Hermes in Greek is Euangelos. Say Euangelos. Well, isn't that exciting? And you say, well, maybe, but we're not sure yet. What does it mean? So glad you asked. Euangelios means, get this, Euangelios, the title of Zeus, means giver of good news. Zeus, in Greek mythology, was the giver of good news. And his son, Hermes, Euangelos, that means bringer of good news. Hermes, in Greek mythology, was bringer of good news. And P.S., I'll bet many of you know and could tell me what the Greek word for good news is. How do we say good news in Greek? Don't help them, George. Gospel. Very good, right? Gospel is the same word in English as it is in Greek. It's a word we use all the time as Christians. There are four of those good newses that begin the New Testament. So gospel means good news. So suddenly, oh my goodness, or oh my gospel, we've got Zeus and Hermes known in Lystra. One of their titles, one of the names they were given when not using their own name, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, they were known as the giver and the bringer of gospel. And if that doesn't hit close enough to home, what English word comes from the same words as euangelios and euangelos? Even sounds like it in English. Can you guess? Evangelist. That's right. Did you know that one of the earliest, at least in writing, if not the earliest evangelist, it wasn't Billy Graham. He's getting older, but he's not this old. Did you know that the earliest evangelist in writing was Zeus and Hermes? They were known in Greek as evangelists. They were known as the ones who gave and brought good news. So let's reset the stage here in context. The people of Lystra are on the lookout for Zeus and Hermes in the form of two ordinary men who might show up again to test their hospitality. This belief and expectation is firmly rooted in their history and religion. They're geared from birth to be on the lookout for someone coming to give and to bring good news. And then Paul and Barnabas toddle up. Down the road, two ordinary guys. Interesting aside, I wonder if that's one reason at least why God earlier put it on John Mark's heart to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe God knew Lister was coming. Well, of course God knew Lister was coming. But maybe he knew because of how the Listerans were wired 
It wouldn't have had the same effect if three of them had walked up the road. It needed to be two. Maybe. But in any event, two show up. One guy, Barnabas, bigger and perhaps older than the other. And the little guy, Paul, does all the speaking. And when he speaks, he know, you know what he calls the message that he's bringing? Gospel. Good news. And then the straw that finally breaks the camel's back. We just read it, right? Paul performs an amazing supernatural act of hospitality. A lame man walks without giving any payment or service in return. And the immediate reaction of the people of Lystra is not only, holy cow, but it's get the cow. Thank you. I worked on that a long time. And they say, all right, okay, that does it. You know, we've been leaning Zeus and Hermes ever since you guys got here, but this clinches it. Get the cow, get the wreaths. It's Zeus and Hermes, kind of like a cheer. We're not going to make that mistake again. You're not going to fool us again, gods. We're not going to miss Zeus and Hermes and get wiped out again. It's got to be Zeus and Hermes. Get the cow, just in case. So they get the cow. And then what happens? Let's look, beginning at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, that they were getting cows and wreaths and wanted to offer sacrifices to them, they tore their clothes, a sign of great anguish and great passion. Jews, in particular, other Near Eastern cultures, to show that something was really important to you, you would tear your clothes. They tore their clothes and, and rushed into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We, too, are only men, human like you. <laughs> and then Paul says something that we can laugh at a little bit in context. He's trying to convince them that he's not Hermes, right? <laughs> Look at what he says. We are bringing you good news. I mean, no wonder. Look down in verse um, 18. Give me the next slide, please. No wonder, Luke adds, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Previous slide, please. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. And then Paul gets all general revelation on them. If you're a theologian, you know what that means. It's how the heavens and nature speak of God. The living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, this living God let all nations go their own way. He allowed them to be confused by the devil. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Yet this living God has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. I can just picture two Lystrans listening to Paul explain that they are really just ordinary men. And then Paul says, we are bringing you good news. You could see where these Lystran guys might have had some difficulty. They kind of look at each other. He just said, we are bringing good news. It's like, oh, come on, Paul. I mean, you just said you're bringing good news. That's like your name. Hermes. 
You can't fool us again. We're going to pass the test this time. Are you sure you're not Hermes? No wonder Paul and Barnabas had a difficult time convincing them. Now, at this point, you're thinking, or at least I hope you're thinking, well, so what, Pastor? So, maybe there are these connections between the Lystrans' expectations of Zeus and Hermes and Paul and Barnabas. While that might be interesting, what's the point? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. My students at Front Range Christian know that when we study Bible stories or Bible books, I often like to give them a bumper sticker. Not a real sticker, but a slogan. Something short, maybe it rhymes, this one happens to, to help them remember one of the things, at least, about the story or the book that we've studied. Now, one bumper sticker I have for Acts 14 is this. God uses what the devil confuses. It's almost as good as one a year, George, but not quite. God uses what the devil confuses. Say, what do I mean by that? Look at what happens here. God allowed the devil to create a long-standing pagan myth in the town of Lystra. One that pointed to Zeus and Hermes as gods and as the giver and bringer of good news. And as a result, Lystra, generations later, finds itself on the lookout for another visit from the gods. And more than that, they're on the lookout. They're hungry for the giver and bringer of good news. And what's more... They're geared and extremely careful to treat strangers well and to listen carefully to what they have to say. Just look at how God uses that attempt of the devil to confuse. Paul and Barnabas are welcomed with open arms because they show up with good news. And they kind of look like Zeus and Hermes in human form. Look how God uses that. The people of Lystra are open, at least, to to hearing this good news. And Paul and Barnabas get to share the only real and authentic good news of, of Jesus Christ, at least in part because of that devilish plan of Zeus and Hermes. Can you just hear the devil groan that day when his lie backfires? So what might that mean for us today? Well, there are all sorts of towns out there, lots of people who've been fooled by the devil. They believe in all sorts of other gods, whether they are the gods of organized false religion or whether their gods are other gods of self like money and sex and power. The devil confuses people as to who the real God is and what is the true gospel, the real good news. And while that's indeed sad that they are confused, it creates often an amazing opportunity for us to tell them about God, just like that day in Lystra. Because no false God or false good news ultimately fully satisfies. People are ultimately hungry and seeking and searching for the real deal. And like Paul and Barnabas, we get to show and tell them. We get to feed their hunger and satisfy their search. It's one reason why the story of Lystra in Acts 14 encourages me. It has God's fingerprints all over it. God got to Lystra centuries before Paul and Barnabas did. 
He got there first and created a town eager for good news. They got it wrong of who it was coming from. They got it wrong for what it was, but at least they're eager for it. So no matter how hopeless a a mission field or even an individual person appears to you today, no matter how entrenched in false religion and pagan gods and practices someone might be, take care because God got there first. And He'll make a way. He's already made a way. He promises us that. The wheat fields are ripe. We just need to harvest. He promises He'll make a way, even if at first we might have to convince someone not to kill a cow. (laughs) And that's got to be real frustrating for the devil, doesn't it? I mean, he spends generations on some of these lies. He's got to be figuring, as he watches Paul and Barnabas walk down the road, he's got to be figuring, all right, let's see what happens in Lystra. They're going to have no chance at all with these Lystrans. Because the devil's been working hard on Lystra. He's got them right where he wants them. Dazed and confused and deeply lost in the myth of Zeus and Hermes. But then God comes in and uses the devil's lie in a way that makes God's own messengers more effective and winsome. I see the devil that day in Lystra, right? The devil does this all again. He goes, oh, God did it again. I see the devil doing that again in Lystra. The devil's lies might seem like fun at first. They might seem fulfilling at first. But ultimately, over time, they serve God's purpose in only intensifying the hunger for the real truth, the real deal. And that's got to drive Satan crazy. It's got to try him that even his lies helps God in a way. His tricks ultimately make us even hungrier for God. So God uses what the devil confuses to help convict people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that about God. He's the best ever, isn't he, at making lemonade from lemons? Best ever. He does it all the time. How's that Bible verse going, Romans 5? For while we were yet lemons, Christ died for us. Right? Something like that. God uses what the devil confuses. Remember that. When you're ever dismayed or you want to lose temptation or you want to run because of the lies and deceit that people are under, hang in there with them. God's already working and their confusion, in fact, might turn out to be the key to their hunger and eventual acceptance of the good news of Jesus Christ. You want a tough witness. A tough witness is someone who doesn't feel confused and is sure. And so in that way... Sometimes even the devil's confusion God can use for good. He does it all the time, just like in Lystra. God uses what the devil confuses. Second bumper sticker for Acts 14. Keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. Keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. Now, I've talked about that one before. I'm going to talk about it again, and it won't be the last time I talk about it because the Bible circles around that one in particular all the time, and so will we. Look at, what, look at Paul and Barnabas in our text this morning. As soon as they realize that the people are pointing to them rather than the one who sent them, they shout, tear their clothes, and they shout, the Bible says, No, it is not about us. This one even brings Barnabas to his feet. 
That one makes me grin a bit because, you know, Barnabas is all about letting Paul take the lead and Barnabas doesn't do the speaking. But the text here says both he and Paul started shouting, no, it's not about us. You remember, Barnabas is a priest by definition and call on his life. He's God's representative, God's ambassador. The priest in him that day must have nearly had a heart attack when he realized that the people were about to worship him rather than God. That's a real big oops for a priest. And we know from Acts 12, remember, just two chapters earlier, in the story of King Herod Agrippa, remember him? We know, and both Paul and Barnabas, I'm sure, must have heard the story too. Everybody was talking about it. What happened the last time someone who God put in a position of authority accepted praise as a god you remember what happened yeah right the angel of the lord struck herod down on the spot for failing to point to god when people were pointing to him you might remember too from that message if you heard it that 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 uh the, the historian josephus tells us that immediately before herod doubled over josephus says anyway herod saw an owl perched on a wire above him. Whether it was a real owl or not, who knows. Probably a metaphor for a divine messenger, certainly a sign of impending doom for Herod. So I don't know. Maybe as Paul and Barnabas realized the people were trying to give them credit for being gods, they started looking around for that owl. That owl of pride circling around their head. Not literally. Or maybe an angel of the Lord. That might have helped motivate them to get on their feet and shout, No, 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 no. No, no, no. It's not about us. It's, we're just human beings like you. Our message is from God. The one who sent us. We are not the gods. Paul and Barnabas may have had some real motivation there, especially to make it perfectly clear they were not gods. The last time someone did that, they ended up dead. I don't know, I think of the moment when Paul and Barnabas first realized that what the people were about to do, there must have been like one of those all-time looks of shock on their face, right? It's like when, that, when your jaw drops, right? All of a sudden they see this priest and he's carrying this cow. And then some other priest comes, you know, with his arms carrying a couple of wreaths. So they look over there and they see they're making a beeline for them and suddenly it dawns on them, oh my goodness, they're going to praise and worship us. I mean... <laughs> that's a sure sign that as a teacher or preacher, something you said has gone horribly wrong. Can you just say, no, no, no. And then Paul and Barnabas look at each other, right? Like, they're going to worship us. <laughs> no, 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 no. Time out, time out, time out. Can we like reverse this and start the message over again? The whole scene, it, 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 it's got to make us smile just a bit, doesn't it? And the thrust of Paul and Barnabas' response is, No, we're not the gods. We're not gods. We're merely messengers, ambassadors, sent by the one and only living God to testify about Him and not us. Did you know that the only place in Acts that Luke ever refers to Paul and Barnabas as apostles is in this chapter, chapter 14? Once in verse 5, and once in verse 14. That's the only place that Luke in Acts calls Paul and Barnabas apostles. 
Why? Well, an apostle, by definition, is a messenger, an ambassador, commissioned directly by God himself to deliver a message on God's behalf. Some theologians will add that an apostle was also a personal witness to Jesus' resurrection. But the push of the word apostle is that they are, by definition, ambassadors sent by God. And it may well be that Luke uses that word apostle here, especially here in this story, to further emphasize to anyone reading or hearing the story that Paul and Barnabas are indeed just that. As important as they are, as apostles, they are merely messengers. They are not God. They're not the point. It's not about Paul and Barnabas. It's not about a messenger of God. It's all about God. So keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. From day one, our family, from you all at West Bowles, Jill and the kids and I, you've just blown us away. In a good way. <laughs> We've rarely felt so loved and accepted and encouraged by, by anyone. And thank you so much for that. We deeply appreciate it, and, and we're truly humbled by it. Whenever someone comes up and says, great message today, or we're so glad you're here, Todd, or you're the answer to our prayers, Todd, someone said, that's um, it's very affirming, and it makes us feel really good. Downright warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> and uh, seriously, it, it strengthens us, and it keeps us going. But there's also a part of me that when I hear compliments like that, there's a part of me that silently screams inside something like, Oh, dear God, no. And I know you don't mean it this way. No one has yet tried to worship me or sacrifice a cow to me. But I am wary. I, I want to be very wary that nothing God does through me becomes about me. It must be and it must stay about God. If the devil's a roaring lion just waiting to pounce on us and the Bible tells us he is, then pride, I think, must be the lion's teeth. And it's tempting for me to take your compliments and start to feel, well, yeah, that was a great message. I spent a lot of time on that, and I worked hard on that, and I deserve a little credit. Or, yeah, I can certainly see why someone like me would be an answer to prayer. <laughs> now, P.S., gentlemen in the room in particular, at least those of you who are married, this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that God gives us wives. Amen, Glenda says. Because wives don't let us get away with that, do they, guys? Now, in, in fairness, let me make it clear. No one encourages me like Jill does. No one. I couldn't do this without her. I, I wouldn't even know how to try, really. And, no less true, no one helps me keep my own head and ego out of it like Jill does either. And so, again, I couldn't do this without her. 
We all need both encouragement and accountability, don't we? Of course, now my great fear is that from now on, none of you will ever say anything encouraging to me ever again. <laughs> oh, I hope you do. Uh, I, um, I need the encouragement. But like any family, in addition to your encouragement, I need you to help me watch for pride. Will you do that, please? And so can we say as Christians to one another, good job, and then respond with a simple thank you? Well, sure, absolutely, and we should. But it's important in Christian community especially, crucial in fact, that both when we give and when we receive compliments, that both sides, the giver and receiver of compliments, it's important that they realize, that we realize that all the credit Every speck of it goes to God and God alone. And we have to keep that in mind. As long as we keep that in mind, as we keep encouraging one another, we keep the devil, with God's help, from, from gaining that toehold of pride in the church. We kick the teeth right out of that lion. And there's nothing, in my opinion, that can destroy a church quite like pride. Keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. Be on the lookout for that owl of pride circling over your head. And if you think there may even be one up there, start shouting like crazy. You can tear your clothes if you want, but start shouting like crazy like Paul and Barnabas did and pointing to God. Amen? Today at 1.30, we'll get uh, together again for our annual chili cook-off, as Brad said. And once again, we'll get a chance to hear from Carl Mecklenburg. You know what I love most about Carl? Carl's a guy who, because of his athletic ability and character and heart and hard work and all of um, a huge list of amazing gifts, Carl's a guy, because of that, he made it big in the world of sports, where lots and lots of people point to in admiration, don't they? Lots of people point to Carl. And you know what Carl does? He keeps pointing to God. I love that about Carl. So come today and you will see and hear Carl point to God. And you will be encouraged. And given the game against the Colts, you may need to be encouraged. <laughs> I'm a huge Bronco fan today, by the way. So Just when they play the Steelers, I root again. Yes, there's hope for me. I know that's what you're thinking. Keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. Third, for this we need to finish off the story of Lystra. And it suddenly takes an ugly, ugly turn for our friend Paul, beginning in verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul... Oh, if we had some time, I'd explain stoning to you. I think I have in the past. We will and again. We will sometime in the future. Awful, brutal procedure. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So suddenly, these Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium show up. I call this group of Jews stalker Jews. 
Okay? That works, right? And, and these stalker Jews, they follow Paul around and hound him right up until the end of his life. Really. Here they come. Some of them from Pisidian Antioch, which is 120 miles away. 120 miles. They walk for a solid week at least. Just to dog Paul and Barnabas and their message. And this time, they're coming with murder on their minds. Boy, this is one motivated group of people. And they get there right as Paul and Barnabas seem to be gaining ground. And it gets ugly, really ugly. These, these stalker Jews turn the crowd from wanting to worship Paul to wanting him dead. We don't know what it is those Jews said to turn, those, turn that crowd so completely around. But whatever it is, it convinces them and they stone Paul and leave him for dead. We know, by the way, that not everyone turns against Paul that day because even after he's dragged outside the city and is laying there left for dead, there are disciples, we just read, that, that gather around him. But in any event, a group of people stone Paul and leave him for dead. He recovers and then amazingly goes back into the city. I thought of spending an entire sermon on that line alone. He got up and went back into the city. Oh my goodness, what is he thinking? We learn a lot about Paul and we learn a lot about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in that one line. He gets up, no doubt battered and bloodied and bruised, and he gets right back in there. Instead of camping longer, at least, on Paul's incredible perseverance, I'd like to take, in closing, yet another opportunity to expose the lie of the so-called health and wealth gospel. Have you heard of it? Health and wealth you may have noticed these past few weeks that along the way of Paul's journey so far, Luke paints a very explicit and very clear picture of increasing persecution. On Cyprus, their first stop, a little bit of persecution. The only persecution recorded is in the form of one man, a false prophet named Alimas, who's rather quickly and thoroughly discredited. And then as you can see on the slide in the next city, Pisidian Antioch, now it's not just one person, but it's a group of Jews that oppose Paul. And this time, the specifics Luke gives us at least about the persecution is that this group talked abusively against what Paul was saying and finally got them expelled from the region. And then next in Iconium, it's not just a group of Jews that oppose Paul, but now some Gentiles have joined in. Do you feel it increase? And suddenly it gets much more personal. It's not just talk and making Paul leave them alone anymore. It's a plan to torture and to kill Paul and Barnabas. The Bible says a plan to mistreat them and stone them, we read in 14 verse 5. Now, today, finally in Lystra, we see Luke's theme of increasing persecution develop even further. The plan to kill is now carried out. Paul is actually stoned and left for dead. Please, please, don't let anyone tell you that the Christian life and witness is a walk in the park. Don't let anyone feed you the lie that God necessarily wants you healthy and wealthy all the time. And if you're not, 
you must not have enough faith, or you must not be saying the right prayer, or you're only saying the prayer of Jabez 37 times, you better try 74 times. That's a lie. And it's a dangerous one, especially for new Christians, because we set them up. We set ourselves up when we fall for that lie. It's like, okay, so if we become a Christian, everything in life is going to be just great. We'll be like a God. And then what happens if God, in His mysterious, infinite wisdom, allows pain and suffering? We set people up then to think God is a fraud. I have an open question to health and wealth advocates, either here or online. Please write me and answer this question for me. How does a health and wealth gospel advocate explain what happens to Paul? I don't think they can explain that. They just sort of more or less ignore it. I mean, I, you're going to tell me that Paul got stoned in Lystra because he didn't have enough faith or didn't say the right prayer? Christian life and witness is hard. Now, it's the best life possible. But it's hard. And we will be persecuted. And it may not end until God calls us home for good. And even though Paul is stoned, God grants him enough to have him get up and keep going. It's not time for Paul to go home just yet. And that's God's promise to us, too. He'll give us enough to keep going. He promises. Right up until the day when we hear Jesus say, good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then, guaranteed, all pain and suffering stops forever. Amen? God uses what the devil confuses. Keep pointing to God, especially when people point to you. And don't be surprised if you're persecuted. In fact, expect it. And when it comes, trust humbly in the Lord to see you through. He will. He guarantees it. And God keeps His guarantees. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to see, as Paul and Barnabas did that when people are confused by the devil over who is God and what is the good news, help us, Father, to seize on that as an opportunity to shout it's all about You. And to clear up that confusion with action as well as with words as we bring the only and real good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, please keep us Spare us, protect us, help us to hold one another accountable from pride. And when people start pointing to us as we bring them the message of your love, as if it's something that that we're doing on our own, when people start pointing to us, please, Father, give us the humble guts to stick our finger in the air and to point to you and to deflect all praise and all credit to you, Father. Please give us that strength. And Father, would you help us when we're persecuted? Father, we pray when persecution, pain, and suffering comes, Father, that you would take it away because 
We don't like pain and we don't like to hurt. And we passionately pray, Father, that it's your will that you remove pain and remove obstacles from our lives. And Father, we also recognize humbly and submit to you and your well that your will, that it's not always your will, Father, that that pain be removed. And Father, give us that humility to accept it when that's the answer. And give us then in those circumstances the humble trust in you to see us through, which you guarantee. And Father, we trust you today and implore you today to keep that promise. Father, we pray all of this in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. If you would like to pray this morning, please, there will be folks up here that would love to pray with you. Otherwise, hope to see you all at 1, 1.30. It should be a fun time this afternoon. God bless you. Have a great week.